Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 293, Dr. Joanne Brandt on the Gospel According to John, Part 1. Dr. Joanne Brandt is Professor of Bible, Religion, and Philosophy at Goshen College. Her first book was entitled Dialogue and Drama, Elements of Greek Tragedy in the Fourth Gospel. But I invited her for an interview about her very interesting commentary on the Gospel according to John which is part of a series called Paideia Commentaries on the New Testament. This is a series of commentaries which, rather than getting bogged down for very long in textual critical questions, chooses to focus on interpreting the documents as we have them. Dr. Craig Keener about this book says, This marvelous commentary is packed with substantive information and fresh insights. One may disagree with interpretations at points, but I find them consistently stimulating and well thought out. As with other volumes in the Paideia series, this one is masterfully designed to provide optimum access for readers. Here, then, is the first part of my conversation with Dr. Joanne Brandt. Dr. Brandt, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you for having me. Dr. Brandt, I've really been enjoying your commentary on the gospel according to John. It seems to me that you strike a nice balance between sophistication and accessibility. Like, it's, it's very accessible to the student or the interested scholar from another field, but it's not dumbed down. Did this book uh, ultimately come out of your teaching, or does this derive from your doctoral research, or how did you come to write a commentary on John? Uh, neither of the above. My graduate work was in early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism in the Greco-Roman era. And my own particular focus was on performative speech of oaths and vows. Hmm. So it had nothing to do with the Gospel of John. In fact, when I received my comprehensive exam questions, there was one on the Gospel of John. I was eight months pregnant. I cried. <laughs> I was, there was no Jewish legal material in John, as far as I could see. But when I did begin teaching, I did get to teach the Gospel of John a couple of times in the first year. I enjoyed that tremendously, but then I taught, at, my career was at a small liberal arts college. I had to teach everything under the sun, and there weren't enough students to do the Gospel of John. So my own interest in the Gospel of John sort of went off in my own direction. And it was because of the people I was in dialogue with at the Society of Biblical Literature that my interest in John was sustained. I was very much interested in John as a literary work. My undergraduate degree included a major in English as well as religious studies. So that was the root of my interest in John. Mm -hmm. And then I was very much captivated by the elements of John that were related to ancient drama and theatrical pieces. There was some synergy between my interest in performative speech and the way speech works as an action rather than just as a way of conveying meaning that informs my work. That does seem like a highly composed book, doesn't it? Like very deliberately put together thing. 
not just a slapdash bunch of reports or something. Yes, it definitely came from the hand of a very sophisticated mind. And there's a continued debate about what sort of education we can presuppose a gospel writer had. And even if that education was just a primary education, the author of the Gospel of John was a literary genius. There's no doubt about it in my mind. As someone who used to teach critical thinking and logic classes at the college level, it warms my heart to see somebody discussing modus tollens and the memes <laughs> and, uh, you know, rhetorical approaches according to ancient instructors. Yeah. I, I really think that's something that sets the book apart is all that kind of background explanation mm-hmm. and analysis of the actual arguments, because there are long arguments here in these long speeches between Jesus and, quote, the Jews, and there's more going on there than meets the eye. Yes. Well, we have this bad habit of reading the Bible in snippets, like single verses taken out of context. Mm. Yeah, there's a real progression going on in those long discourses. If you start thinking about them as action rather than just meaning, It's not necessarily building to a theological conclusion, but that tension between Jesus and his audience builds as the discourses continue. And so looking at them in terms of twists and turns, as Perry and Riposte using these fencing Mm -hmm. terms, is a way of really helping one sustain one's interest as you continue on. And I think that that's one of the things that gets lost if we aren't sensitive to the way the discourses are really verbal duels. The ancient audience would have known that very agonistic cultures where people were entertained by watching arguments unfold mm-hmm. and verbal debates. And so the audience knows that Jesus is going to win the argument at the end of the day, but how Jesus wins that argument or how he forces his opponent to resort to violence. And as soon as they do that, they've lost the argument when they can no longer continue arguing and they turn around and pick up stones to throw at him. They've lost the argument. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Brandt, when you were doing your research for this commentary, did you find that you had some favorite commentaries of your own that helped you a lot? Are there any commentaries that you really like and recommend to people other than, than your own? Well, in terms of those commentaries that everybody should have because they're encyclopedic and help you uncover all of those ancient sources, of course, Raymond Brown's commentary is going to be a perennial classic. He's such a sensitive reader. Mm. And Craig Keener's work at digging up possible references is very, very helpful. He's, how to put it, tireless in his, his commentary work. There's many others. There's one that I probably neglected. In retrospect, I wished I'd drawn more attention to, and that's Gail O'Day's commentary in her work in general, because she does such a good job of moving from examination of narrative to theology. And I wish in retrospect, I had cited her work more. I think it's informed me in a more general way. And I didn't realize it until when she died, I realized, oh, there was a serious omission there. One interesting difference, I think, between the average Christian in the pew and scholars who discuss John nowadays is 
It seems to me that the average Christian accepts the traditional attribution of this book to the Apostle John, and Mm -hmm. that's not a consensus among scholars nowadays. Why is that, and what's your own view about the author of the fourth gospel? Yeah, well, authorship, of course, is such a complicated question when looking at John, because you have an authoritative oral tradition that seems to precede the gospel. So the reference to the beloved disciple as being the authority behind the gospel right at the end mm-hmm. suggests that when talking about author, we have to talk about a committee and a teacher. So we have a teacher that is the beloved disciple who is acknowledged as the authority, and then you have what seems to be a community that discusses the received tradition, and then finally somebody who writes it down. And so whoever that author is, I do not think was John. John is the teacher, or I I think it's just safest to say that the beloved disciple was John. Mm-hmm. Any other suggestions tend to fall flat somewhere along the line in the arguments. Mm-hmm. The author remains anonymous to a large extent. In my first work, I draw a parallel with Plato in terms of the author wanting to claim the same sort of anonymity as the beloved disciple. By doing that, they come under less scrutiny in a sense. Nobody can challenge their authority if you don't really know who you're pointing a finger at. And also because the author likes to use the language of we at the beginning and end in a way that co-ops the reader into the task of constructing the narrative in some ways. Hmm. I don't think it serves much to drag the audience in the pew into the discussion of who's the author. And so I think just calling him John is fine to do. Mm -hmm. How much does it add to the believer's understanding of the gospel to get into the whole question of authorship? So your view is that there is something to the tradition, which is that it was John's testimony that was behind it, although there was more than one hand involved, I guess, in writing it? Yes. A lot of 20th century commentaries, it seems to me, kind of get into a mud pit trying to detect different hands and, you know, take apart the prologue as an independent piece and how did the author change it and why is there an extra ending on the book? Mm-hmm. I mean, the simplest explanation is it's basically one author, but it just has some oddities. Yeah, I think that's the safest answer. All of us can be guilty of weak transitions. And in some cases, what is considered evidence of editing can be explained through some various literary theories. It might be the double ending of the gospel happened because the author was bringing it to a close and then decided, no, I want another chapter here because I've left some things unresolved. And there's evidence of double endings in ancient literary works Hmm. that form parallels. And the two endings together satisfy the requirements of a conclusion to a work. Mm-hmm. So if we get down into some of the nitty gritties, the way that the prologue pulls the audience of the gospel out of their time back into the time of Jesus, we have at the end in the second ending, the one I like to call the breakfast on the beach, mm-hmm. 
we have the opposite happening with the reference to the death of the beloved disciple. We have the narrative moving from the time of Jesus back into the time of the audience. So there's that elegant parody between the two openings and closings. When the Trinity's podcast returns, should we understand the fourth gospel to be historical in the way that the first three are? Controversy that is in current scholarship, and I don't remember that you had very much about this in the in your commentary. Is you know the book seems so different in the way it presents Jesus and his message than the synoptics. Mm-hmm. Some commenters think that the the author here has been rather free in inventing speeches and situations, whereas there's also kind of an evangelical pushback that no, why can't this just be eyewitness testimony and John just remembers things differently. What do you have to say about that? You know, is this a creative portrait or is it more like sort of memoirs and eyewitness, you know, recountings? Yes. Well, I would, at the risk of offending some evangelicals, uh, say that I don't think if we had a camera and recorder and was following Jesus was around in the first century, we would have picked up much of what he says in the Gospel of John. But We need to recognize that understanding of creativity is quite different in the ancient world. And I think we need to avoid imposing our own notions of creativity on that action. It can be inspired and be just as true. And as we all know, what we see and experience at the phenomenal level, in the modern world, we look at it through the lens of science. It takes what Paul Ricoeur calls a second naivete to get to the level of the sacred. And John, through his art, helps us get to that, what is really going on, who Jesus really is, in a way that we wouldn't have been able to understand if we were just watching a documentary on the life of Jesus with film footage taken by some news camera. It seems to me it must have been understood in ancient times that the author was going to be composing speeches to display their characters, because unless somebody was sitting there taking shorthand, there's no recorders, you know. Also, they didn't have red letter editions and quotation marks. So that sort of gives you a little more room to operate in how you present, especially Axe is notable for its speeches. Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe he's getting the gist of it, but... I mean, what's the chance that any three sentences that in a row are what was actually said? Yeah. Well, and I tend to be quite conservative when looking at the synoptic tradition, thinking that much of what is in there that is attributed to Jesus was indeed a good paraphrase of what Jesus said, Mm -hmm. or a good translation of what Jesus said. 
and allowing for variation. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Jesus seminar methodologies, but with the Gospel of John, we're facing something so radically different than what we see in the synoptics. And I do think that John had at least one of the synoptics before him when he was writing. Mm-hmm. And I suspect Mark and Luke, were, he was familiar with those, and it allows him to play off of them and to build upon them. So he is the spiritual gospel. He does pull back the veil and show us much more of who Jesus really is. And so gives us a higher Christology than the synoptic gospels or a clearer understanding of who Jesus is, speaking as somebody from a faith tradition. So he gives the Christian Jesus. He's creative. I don't think that he's doing anything truly startling at the point that he's introducing his higher Christology. I tend to be a big fan of Larry Hurtado's work. Hurtado argues that in terms of practice, in terms of worship practices, Christianity arrives implicitly at a high Christology very quickly, but it takes a while for its theologians to articulate that in language that then moves closer and closer to a Trinitarian doctrine. And John is really important in putting into words what people are already expressing through their practice of prayer to Jesus and in what is essentially worship of Jesus that puts him on a par with God. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of a fan of Hurtado's work as well. I've had the privilege of interviewing him a couple of times and reading several of his books. It seems to me that when he talks about high Christology, he basically means just this point that Jesus is given what he calls cultic uh, worship alongside God, sort of under God, because of God. I don't know, on the theology, he seems less clear to me. Sometimes he thinks it's it's kind of a stepping stone to um, the deity of Christ, but other times he says very strongly that you know, the reason that these Christians worship Jesus is not because they thought he was divine or because they thought he was God, but because they thought God required this of them, yes. exalting Jesus. Is that your view of it? In terms of what is happening in the early church, yes. But then when we get to John, it's moving later than that. Mm-hmm. So John's on that trajectory towards the early creedal confessions where we move into language where Jesus and God are the same person and have the same sort of essence. I think John has clearly moved to a level of Christology where I think he places Jesus as a, about as close to God as you possibly can get. Interesting. I want to come back more to that later, but just to stick to the big picture, and since we're talking about the synoptics in relation to John— One thing I wanted to ask you about is how much you accept the developmental view of the gospel. So, you know, many 20th century and 21st century commenters, they say, well, look, Mark is clearly the earliest. John is clearly the latest. And in the synoptics, Jesus is a man who serves God. Miraculous conception, yes, in Matthew and Luke, but a man who's a servant of God and seemingly doesn't exist before his conception And then they think, well, yeah, but by the time you get to the fourth gospel, you have Jesus being God and he's always existed. It's interesting, like if you're a Christian reader and just 
trying to put all of this together in your mind as true, there's a tension here. Either you want to try to show the synoptics really do teach the deity of Christ, which I'm pretty skeptical about that, or you want to bring John down to where it's saying the same things as the synoptics. But the developmentalists, they like, no, they're just saying different things. The message has evolved in a divine direction. Is that how you see it? Um, probably. I, I've never forced myself to write these things down. And I tend to be, oh, I'm retired now. I can throw caution to the wind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I tend to agree with you in terms of what we can, when reading the Gospels, what we can say about what they thought is limited by what they wrote. And if you're going to determine what the Christology of Matthew is or what the Christology of Mark is, you don't have anything yet resembling a Trinitarian doctrine. Mm-hmm. You have a clear subordination of Jesus and God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus fitting into much more traditional understandings of what Christ the Messiah is than what John presents us with. And so, yeah, I would agree with you. I'm not 100% sure about fitting that into a chronological development of Christian thought, because in Paul, we do have glimmers of something, especially in the Christ hymn in Philippians, that looks very similar to an incarnational Christology, where you have Jesus emptying himself and taking on human form. And so it's hard to say, we just don't have a large enough body of first century literature in which to to determine if there was a broad sweeping development early on of a higher Christology, if we have pockets of it in different places, or poetry is getting ahead of thought and we always need to recognize that some of the highest Christologies get presented to us in poetic forms. And poetry is fraught with exaggeration of expression because it's trying to be laudatory. Mm-hmm. And so that gets a little tricky. But in terms of that development, I do think John comes later and is responding to and pushing the envelope from what he finds in the other earlier written Gospels. Mm-hmm. You're on the late John camp, not pre-70, that it must be... Yeah. You said you thought he was reading Luke and Mark, so that puts it, what, at least in the... In the late 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. One would think that the strong division between the author and, quote, the Jews would suggest a slightly later date, but not everybody agrees, I guess. Uh, But I think it's the majority now kind of puts it late relative to the other Gospels. Yeah, I think the majority does agree that the temple is no longer standing, and that the replacement of the temple motif that runs throughout the Gospel, Jesus as the temple, makes the most sense if that temple is no longer standing. Mm. And I do think that that's opposition to Judaism or the anti-Judaism element in the gospel is in part because John is appropriating the temple for Jesus. And as soon as he does that, it begins moving the Joannine community or the reader of the gospel further away from traditional Judaism. 
or you shouldn't say traditional Judaism, traditional Judaisms. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about the current trend of trying to show that even the first three Gospels teach the deity of Christ? developmental side, which I think is maybe a majority among textual specialists. There's also a strong push, at least in the evangelical world, to try to raise up the Christology of the Gospels to be obviously equal to John. So this is slightly off topic, but I'm curious what you think about this, because it's something I see very often in certain circles. So with some bravado, they'll say, let's take the earliest Gospel, Mark, and right in chapter one, the author quotes this prophecy from Isaiah, where you're going to make straight the paths of the Lord. So in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Right now, this is John the Baptist making a way for Jesus. So there you go. Jesus is Yahweh. Boom. He's asserting this right in chapter one. And so, you know, where's this difference between Jesus and God in this book? When he says, uh, I think, let's see, is this in Mark or just in Matthew? I think it's in both when he's walking on the water and he says, it is I, Right, ego a me in Greek. Mm-hmm. Aha, he's saying he's God himself. Yeah. Do you resist these pushes to Well, we see the same thing in Paul, where he appropriates Lord for Jesus and does the same sort of exegetical sleight of hand by moving texts that clearly referred to God in the Old Testament and making them refer to Jesus mm-hmm. in his letters. Mm-hmm. I suspect that that would have been homiletic fair play or exegetical fair play in the context that he was writing. It's hard to know to what extent he's really moving to a deification of Jesus or putting Jesus on a par in terms of authority. Mm-hmm. Slightly different thing. Mm-hmm. Jesus has the same authority as God, but making him God I still suspect that that would have been something that just wouldn't have made complete sense mm-hmm. at the time that Paul was writing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he says Jesus is a descendant of David, and yeah. worship of Jesus is, is to the glory of God the Father. And mm-hmm. in the Pauline letters, the one God and the one Lord, those are two different ones. That's not the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is taking a title that used to be arguably in the highest sense of kurios. That was something for God only. But, well, I mean, if you just look in the lexicon under kurios, it could mean substitute for the divine name in an Old Testament quotation, or it could mean Jesus, or it could mean master, sir, that type of thing. <laughs> There's like four meanings. So yeah, that second highest one, I think, is a new New Testament thing. Yes. Yes. And I do think more and more scholars are recognizing how important the role that the Shema plays in the formation of uh, New Testament thought and how, you know, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. The relationship between 
Jesus and God is this resonance, that Jesus is so in tune with God that when Jesus says something, it's a reflection of God's will. It's a reflection. He speaks for God in a way that is maybe beyond what the Old Testament prophets, Mm -hmm. their authority. Mm -hmm. So Christianity is trying to claim a sort of orthodoxy that they're they're in continuity with the God of the Old Testament, in continuity with God's promises, that they're the fulfillment of God's promises, and that this isn't a deviation. This isn't something new. And so they have to find a way of making sure that Jesus is not saying anything in contradistinction to what God has said in the past. Mm-hmm. And so all of this starts pushing in the direction that finally, when we get to the creedal statements of the fourth century, it looks in retrospect like a straight trajectory. Of course, standing in the first century when somebody's saying it, I don't think they're anticipating the ultimate outcome mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. fourth century. About your comment about exegetical fair play, I thought about this for a while that they must have thought that Old Testament prophecies as inspired could have multiple meanings and fulfillments that were unknown before. So, you know, when Matthew has the prophecy about Emmanuel being born, that was originally a baby back in the time of Isaiah, but he doesn't think Jesus is that baby. He thinks there's another fulfillment now. Mm-hmm. He's, he's taking that in a messianic sense. So you get you get to have a second crack at interpreting these things because mm-hmm. they think there was this extra meaning packed in. It seems to me that's that must be what's happening. Um, it's not a sneaky way of saying, hey, Jesus is the same one that this prophecy was originally about. Yeah. There was an expectation that there was a surplus of meaning. So they weren't hampered by the Enlightenment and our desire to come up with what is the be-all and end-all for all-time interpretation of a text? And they were hindered by historical consciousness that asked the question of original intent. Well, it's not that they couldn't understand it. It's just that they thought there could be more going on. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that... Yeah, they wouldn't have negated that there was a particular meaning relevant to the people at the time that the prophetic announcement was made. One would hope that they weren't so arrogant as to think that the original audience was befuddled by everything that the prophets said because they couldn't have anticipated the Christ event, that scripture has meaning for each generation, I think is the way they would have understood it. Mm -hmm. Since we're on this topic about the deity of Christ and the Gospels, I'm curious what you think about Again, I don't remember if this was in the commentary. I think it wasn't that I recall. But in a certain wing of scholarship, at least in evangelical scholarship, this is kind of all the rage today. Richard Bauckham's new talk about divine identity, he finds divine identity Christology everywhere. It's in all the Gospels. It's in, it's in every book of the New Testament. What do you make of that? I'll be honest, I'm very skeptical. I've actually published a paper criticizing this in gruesome detail, but... I'm curious what your attitude about that is. Do you think it's helpful? In the context of a seminary, it's helpful to seminarians 
who are trying to figure out how they're going to move from their more nuanced understanding to a way they feel comfortable about talking about it when they move to preaching. So that's the context that I found Bauckham most helpful recently. Now, I really like Bauckham because he is willing to engage the theological questions. And I think we've all been very nervous about doing this, or I've been very nervous about doing this. And you're pushing me far beyond my comfort zone and making me ask these <laughs> kinds of questions. It's friendly pushing. <laughs> I, I am always uh, appreciative of Bakum in terms of him taking these questions on, and he's so eloquent. Mm. And he also is so respectful of earlier scholarship and the way he, he presents their work. So I, I do appreciate his summaries of previous. But I think what gets slippery is how we understand the divine. And I don't think we've gotten to a point where we finished the discussion about the divine man. And there was that period of time in the 80s when talking about Theos and Air was, was hot. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that there were human beings who essentially through election or through adoption, did take on some quality that was different than the average human being. Mm-hmm. Um, In some sense, divine. Yeah. Yeah. Some sense divine. So there, there's gradations, there's different communities who have different sensibilities. And when Christianity begins to move into the Greco-Roman world, they become much more comfortable with these concepts as it moves away from Judaism. And of course, there's some very Hellenized Mm -hmm. forms of Judaism as well. And one of the frustrations of dealing with the first century is we just don't have enough of a body of evidence to disprove these speculations, nor to prove them. And in some ways, it makes it easier to do scholarship, because you can say almost anything and Uh, (laughs) the book doesn't talk back when you get it wrong that's the frustrating thing about books (laughs) you always have to be careful about saying never because there's always something that'll get dug up to disprove you if you say never going back to Bauckham yeah I mean the guy is clearly a heavyweight scholar you know as they say in Rhode Island he's wicked smart (laughs) but um I think a lot of the people who kind of have jumped on the bandwagon of divine identity Christology, uh, they, they tend to ignore um, an assumption of his that to me is very radical, which is that, and he explains this in some of his earlier work, he thinks, you know, the traditional creedal language somehow is tied to Greek philosophy and kind of doesn't mean anything for us or is not useful to us or something like that. And so... He's kind of trying to replace, he's kind of offering a replacement for traditional talk about, you know, having the divine usia or multiple hypostases and one usia. And that's what this is all supposed to be doing. And I mean, that really reflects a surprising chutzpah, it seems to me. Uh, I'm not against chutzpah, but um, it's not as conservative as it sounds at first glance. Yeah, well, it points to a problem in contemporary Christianity where the creedal statements just 
don't do it for people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he is addressing and probably reflects the sorts of conversations he has with his students as well. Do you come from a very uh, non-credal, Bible-oriented branch of Christianity? I'm a member of a Mennonite congregation, and so we don't recite the creeds. Mm-hmm. Mennonites have a ecclesiology more than they have a Christology or theology. Mm-hmm. They tend to spend much more time talking about what we're supposed to be doing than what we're supposed to be thinking. Mm-hmm. I grew up in basically in mainstream evangelical churches in America and uh, I mean, the creeds really just didn't come into it. Um, mm-hmm. The Trinity didn't really come into it. The deity of Christ was something that would, was kind of presupposed and would come up occasionally, mm-hmm. more in an apologetics context than anywhere else. But I mean, we were kind of just sticking with the Bible. In some sense, Jesus is God. But then when you read the Bible, it looks like they're two different characters. So mm-hmm. you know, we didn't really have anything worked out. We didn't have any big two natures theory that we would bust out and... Mm-hmm. You know, talk about an, an hypostatic uh, nature and the one nature assuming the other. Like, I never heard of that stuff until I was in grad school and, you know, really kind of wanted to get to the bottom of it all. Mm-hmm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we discuss the danger of anachronism when interpreting this famous book. To go back to your commentary, you're not unfriendly to the creeds and to the developments, but at the same time, there's one place where you say, I'm paraphrasing, we don't see a developed Trinitarian view here, and we don't want to import these later notions back into it if we're going to understand kind of what John is saying. Mm -hmm. That's a big thrust of modern scholarship, I guess, just historical critical reading to There are a bunch of favorite proof texts that Catholics and Protestants would have used several hundred years ago. You know, for instance, um, when it calls Jesus uh, monogenes, like, see, that's eternal generation. Yeah. (laughs) And when he says, I and the Father are one, uh, that means that they're the same essence. Yeah. And when it calls Jesus God a couple of times, that just means that he is fully divine and second person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And your work is in the genre, well, well, you know, actually, you know, says beings other than God can be called God, and monogenes really just means, like, unique, and uh, I forget what you said about the Father and I are one. Yeah. <laughs> but I, well, get, I bet I know what you said, though. Yeah, well, I, yeah, looking at that now, I, I see the concept of the Shema where you have this unity rather than co-identity. Unity of Jesus and God? Yeah. It's single-mindedness, single intent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God gives him his work, his calling, his power. Um, he only does what he sees the Father doing. I mean, that's a major theme in this book. It's, mm-hmm. you know, is this guy really from God like he says he is? It's pretty explicit in making the argument, isn't it, that, look, I couldn't be doing these miracles unless it was really God who was 
sending me. Yes. Even a couple of times appeals to God's testimony. You know, if I testify on my own behalf, what good would that be? But someone else testifies about me and that's God. That's the mm -hmm. presumably through the miracles and, and through the divine teaching. In looking at what the gospel is seeking to do as an act of worship, rather than as a Christological treatise where you're trying to figure out what, what is actually going on at a biological, ontological level. The gospel is very much about this language of faith or trust, and mm -hmm. it's about generating a sense of confidence. So confidence in what Jesus is saying, that the community in its act of worship is participating in a broader reality of which God is wholly approving, mm -hmm. and that they, they can trust that if they die, they will be resurrected. Mm -hmm. They can trust that God's presence is in the community, is with them. And clearly there's a backdrop where there's a lot of debate about where God is and what form worship should take. And the gospel is, on the whole, just trying to comfort people and saying, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Just you covered. Yeah, at one point Jesus says, uh, you, you trust in God, also trust in me. Yeah. So I think to some extent, well, theologians and biblical scholars, it's their job to overthink things. <laughs> the audience of the gospel is the general community. And they're not being asked to go into their office and scour through the scholarly literature and look at every little minutia in the text to try and come up with an adequate theory of the divine nature of Christ. They're just being invited to trust Jesus, trust that he's capable of mediating this form of salvation. So, you know, as scholars, we always have to keep our view of how to support that community that is reading the gospel as a source of inspiration. You don't want to cut off that community as in its knees and just treat this text as a dead document from antiquity. Uh, so in my scholarship, I'm always trying to balance the two. I don't want to be brain dead and ignore everything that I know. But at the same time, when I sit down and write something, I want it to be in some ways enriching of somebody's own experience of reading the Gospels rather than diminishing mm. the quality of their experience either as somebody who's just reading them because they're interested in history and, and classical literatures, or if they're somebody who's reading because they really are reading for inspiration and guidance. So yeah, my goal is to try and reach both audiences. Well, it's heartening to me to hear a commenter on John who has a firm grip on what really is the purpose statement in the book but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. That's the author's main purpose. If you don't get that, you're not following along with his thoughts. Yeah. Dr. Brandt, thanks for talking with us. Well, thank you for having me.
week's thinking music has been the track The Jewel and Me by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. A couple months back, we got a new review on Stitcher. A user called SJ79 gives the podcast five stars. The subject line is intelligent and enlightening. This person writes, Dr. Tuggy presents a fascinating podcast that is well-prepared and captivating. You will learn a lot from him and his guests, but more than anything else, this podcast will help you to think clearly. I look forward to every episode. Thank you very much, SJ79, for your kind words. I appreciate it. The Trinity's podcast is available on many platforms. I'd appreciate it if you would leave a review in the place that you find it, whether that's the iTunes store, the YouTube channel, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Maybe one of these days I'll get around to putting the podcast on Spotify. So let me know if there's any demand for that. Thanks for listening. Next week, the second half of my conversation with Dr. Brandt about interpreting the fourth gospel. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.